Thanks for tuning in to episode number 60 of the EAIE podcast. I'm your host, Laura Rumbly, and today we're featuring the first of two back-to-back episodes that touch on the subject of academic mobility for differently abled students and staff. Our first treatment of this topic features an exploration of a center specifically dedicated to supporting the needs of this population. Our guest is Tomasz Varga, who serves as Mobility Coordinator for Students with Special Needs and Student Services Advisor at the Tiresia Center, which is housed at Masaryk University in the Czech Republic. As we'll hear from Tom, the Tiresia Center has been a trailblazing organization working to provide domestic and international students and staff with the supports they need to succeed at his institution, while also participating in conversations and activities at national and European levels focused on advancing this agenda. Lovely to meet you, Tomas. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start out with giving our listeners an indication of your center. And I wonder if you could just kind of briefly tell us what the Teresia Center is and anything about how it came to be established at your university, um, I think in the year 2000. Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, It's a bit of a long story, but to make it brief and short, uh, our center is a support center, which is embedded into Massive University. And we have two main roles. Uh, one is provide services to students, workers, employees, or visiting staff that have health issues and are coming to Brno to Massive University. And the second one is a methodological center. So we also provide methodological guidance and incorporating the principles of predominantly universal design to make it as accessible as possible at our university. And it all started with a single teacher a long, long time ago, uh, Petr Peñas, uh, who is still the director of the center, actually. And he had a visually impaired student, I believe, uh, in his class. And he wanted to have uh, some services provided to the student and realized there are none at the university. So he started to organize the services. And it was, this was long before the year 2000. So he started with this. He was the Faculty of Arts, then Faculty of Informatics. And gradually more and more people added up. And in the year of 2000, the center was officially established at the university. And currently, it has about 40 to 50 employees, internal employees. So we are quite big. That is a really interesting story, and it sounds like um, both a labor of love on the part of the the person who started mm-hmm. it, as well as one of real persistence over time to yeah. make sure that this came to be, you know, in a formal way, in a very substantial way. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. So um, just as the Tiresia Center is attuned to the needs and interests of local or domestic students, mm-hmm. we understand that it also attends to incoming international students who may be interested in accessing the resources and services it provides. What are some of the ways in which the center works to support this particular international population? Right. You are quite right. Uh, so one of the first things is that we have a dedicated team, team of two people, myself and a colleague of mine, Lenka Totova. And we work together to uh, promote uh, our services to incoming students and also for our students who are going abroad. And the promotion also has kind of a um, one part of it is getting in touch with students before they are actually nominated or before they actually set foot on Czech soil. 
Uh, we encourage other institutions to kind of send us an email that there is a student who has special needs and wants to study in the Czech Republic at our university. And we get in touch with the student, provide the information, the basic information, but we also request information on the services that the student needs. And then we try to organize the services at our university, try to find the appropriate accommodation, uh, adaptation services, whether textual or text-based study materials or interpreting services and all these kind of things. And that's my job or the job of my colleague to organize these things. So the student is not alone in it. That is really fantastic. And it brings a couple of different things to mind for me. One mm -hmm. is, do you get the sense that your university is, um, that word of mouth may be spreading about the these kinds of services that you provide and that maybe that is um, a pull factor for other students with disabilities to perhaps be more inclined to mm -hmm. look at your institution knowing that it does have these services in place? Yeah, I think there is this this notion of uh, spreading the word among the students because in the in the recent years we have a quite a peak of students coming in from various places uh, from the US, for example, who have hearing impairment. And before that, we had one or two students, and last semester we had like five or six. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah, there is that can be something okay. about that. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, well, that's wonderful and very interesting to hear about those different services that you are providing. Of course, this has been going on now for 20 years or more at your institution. More, yeah. Yes. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you see some of the key accomplishments of the center as an advocate and service provider, I think particularly when it comes to internationally mm -hmm. mobile mm -hmm. students or staff. I think I already mentioned that the student is not alone. Um, I think that's the major accomplishment that we have uh, when it comes to international students, uh, that they don't have to spend their time looking for various offices, talking to dozens of people like disability officer, office for equal opportunities and so on, which can be the case uh, at various higher education institutions within Europe. Uh, so I think that we can provide the initial step, the first point of contact, provide all the information in a kind of a brief way and also to put it together in a comprehensive way so the student is not lost in all the information, whirlwind and storm and blizzard and so on, whatever we want to call it. Uh, so I think that's that's one part of it and also that we try to we strive for repeatability of the of the services. So we we can remember that we had a similar student who had similar needs, studying similar subjects, so we can apply similar services to the student. And we do it quite often, even though they are tailor-made individual, because individual needs are important. But we can have a look at our records and say, okay, so we did this for this reason, so we can repeat it. So it's not based on kind of a sympathy that right now we want to help, but tomorrow we don't want to. It's based on professional service providing. So I think that's a very, very important key point in it. Absolutely. It sounds like yeah. the streamlining of the, the information that you provide is so key. And the, the fact that you are also yourselves a learning organization. Yeah. 
yeah, exactly. from your own past. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. As opposed maybe to voluntary services where you have volunteers who are passionate, which is very important, but they don't have the sense of like they have to do it sometimes because they have other commitments maybe. So, so yeah. And I think that says something about your institution that it has devoted the resources and, and mm -hmm. thinks this is so important and serious enough to have dedicated staff and services that that also says something. Um, so, so much is being accomplished and we know that issues of inclusion and diversity and equity are so high on the agenda of many institutions in Europe and elsewhere. Um, mm. At the same time, we know that there are lots of challenges that are still associated yeah. with yeah. Uh, serving this population really effectively. Can you pinpoint some of the primary challenges that you see continuing to face internationally mobile students and staff? And can I also kind of weave into that question what challenges your center faces in seeking to assist them? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, in the international realm, uh, the, the biggest challenge is the, the, the huge diversity of service providers. Uh, so our center is kind of unique because it also provides the technical part of the service, the assistance and uh, is responsible for uh, physical accessibility so barrier free rooms and so on which is not often the case when it comes to other countries other regions and this is due to various customs and, and traditions and so on so it's quite uh, normal in their uh, their world or the country itself uh, but it creates a huge barrier when it comes to students trying to leave the, the comfort zone or the country and traveling abroad to a completely different system. Uh, so oftentimes we face each um, face with a problem that the services are provided to natives, to students of a certain country, but not to the international students mm -hmm. because they are provided by non-governmental organizations or local government and so on. And there is a there is a basically a requirement that you have to be the national of the country okay and the international students don't have the exception so and the university often doesn't know about these students because they are not responsible for them because they don't have the service center it's the responsibility of the local government or the government itself so these so, students get caught in the middle of all that exactly it sounds like. exactly yeah and then the student is responsible to contact various people and then after three months they find out that they don't have anyone to talk to to actually get the, the service so i think that's the biggest challenge and and the, the variety is a huge i mean i mean in some countries the services are provided by a single organization in the whole country mm. which is quite costly at the same time and then you have the other extreme where they are provided only by volunteers. Yes. And then, then you can't really rely that they actually will provide the, the service at a certain level, at the appropriate level. So then the students might face that they mm, their studies are lower in terms of quality because they, they face with the difficulties of reading uh, math formulas and so on because there is no one who can actually make them accessible to a visually impaired student or they are facing with issues with psychological health 
help although that's improving because I, uh, mental issues are current issue especially yes. after the pandemic and that's one of the better things but when it comes to se- se- uh, uh, severe disabilities uh, then the services need to be kind of professionalized because they can't be put to volunteers uh, who will assist and read out uh, a letter to the student. I mean, that's common in some countries, but uh, to read out a whole book to a student, that's kind of a difficult way to go and to study like for a prolonged period of time, for half a year to have an assistant to just read the books. I don't think that's a very a very good way to, to continue of studying. So this is the challenge. I, I think it's uh, very uh, current in terms of international relations and students traveling abroad. Absolutely. Okay. And any any other particular challenges that you feel like centers uh, such as yours face at the moment? Right. Uh, well, uh, you mentioned that uh, our university is dedicated in terms of providing uh, funds. Well, the challenge is the funding that uh, needs to be kind of increased to continue provide the uh, high level, uh, high level services. So I think the challenge is the the funding and the sustainability of the of the service, but at the same time is uh, broadening our service provision. So. We, we began originally 20 years ago only with severe disabilities, visually impairment, hearing impairment, mobility impairment, and gradually we added other impairments like hidden impairments, so, so to call them, such as uh, specific learning difficulties, mental issues, chronic diseases. So uh, we are adding more to it. So that might be a challenge into, in, uh, in the next couple of years especially with the mental issues, for example, with the increased number of students, we already have them. We actually employ therapists to, to um, provide therapies to, to some students because they can't find them out, outside of the university. So kind of a crisis therapy, so to call them, to, to uh, help them uh, during their studies. But we found out that two is not enough we may need to employ five more to actually uh, cover the demand that there is. So this might be the challenge in the next couple of years or in the next decade. Okay, very interesting. The whole scope question um, Mm. and always the resources required to make it all work as we would want it to. Um, So this is really helpful to to give us an understanding of that um, sort of the the day-to-day realities uh, that Mm -hmm. you're working with. We recently had a conversation with colleagues from the Institute of International Education, or IIE, in the United States, who've been working to try and establish this clear picture of the state of the art of data collection on international students with disabilities in the U.S. So maybe taking a step up into that bird's eye view of the big picture of data collection in different Mm -hmm. ways. They're trying to figure out what is known and how institutions can potentially get better at collecting data on disabled Mm. mobile students, and then ultimately, hopefully being able to serve them better on the basis of that information. And we're actually going to be sharing that conversation um, on a next episode of the EA podcast, which is very nice, I think, for us to, to add into this conversation with you. But I wanted to bring that specific question to you. Mm-hmm. How much of a challenge is data collection from or about students and or staff in the context in which you work? 
Uh, it used to be a bigger problem than it is now, uh, especially in relation to the general data protection regulation. Uh, but we kind of sorted it out by saying that if someone needs some kind of services or proper services, service provision at the, at the institution at Maser University, they need to disclose their special requirements or their health certificate or medical records. So we can actually provide and run a so-called functional diagnosis to identify what are the impacts of their disability, let's say, on the studies that they are doing at the university. So uh, the collection is quite clear. We have a consent on that. And many of the students are providing the information willingly. We also disclosed that the information is kept secret at the same time in a core team. It's not shared publicly, the diagnosis and the medical information. We only share to the teachers and examiners and the faculty itself only the functional diagnosis, so the impact. So if it's a wheelchair user, we don't share, we don't say why he is a or she is a wheelchair user. We just say he or she is a wheelchair user and needs a better free room to get somewhere or to have the exams or the classes. This is fairly easy in terms of the visible in uh, disabilities and more uh, kind of a, a more difficult when it comes to hidden disabilities, mental issues especially. But we have the same policy at the same time, and it works out quite quite all right. It works great. Uh, I think the important thing there is to keep the diagnosis within the core team and not to share it. And I say openly that we don't share it. We just share what's the impact. So let's say decreased work pace or the increased fatigue and so on, and the side effects of the medication. They don't need to know what kind of medication it is. They just need to know that there is a side effect of, a, let's say, dizziness in the morning, or so to speak. Uh, but at the same time, we have issues with our partners, let's say, uh, European partners especially, who sometimes they say it's kind of a scarecrow, the GDPR, that they can't actually ask anyone about their medical condition or disability or uh, and these related questions and topics, they can't ask about it. And so we kind of argue about it, that if you want to provide a proper service, then you need to know the information. You don't have to share it. And at the same time, GDPR has a special subsection on, on the medical records and the related um, kind of protection of these information. And the students can willingly disclose this information to a certain number of people so they can work with it to provide the service. So I think this is the, the kind of a minor clash that there is. So I, I think it is, it is a barrier when it comes to collecting the information because many of the institutions don't even want to collect them because they are afraid that they are going to uh, violate the law and and so on. So to actually provide a bird's eye view on it, then you face the issues that some, some people don't want to provide the bird's eye view because they don't have the data. Whereas we do have the data when we can, we can share some of it, of course. 
like anonymized version of it uh but some of our partners can't or don't want to or are too afraid to do it actually that does sound like yeah. a challenge to have some alignment of those policies mm -hmm. and practices um but it sounds yeah. like in the case of your institution you really have clarity around that and mm -hmm. a respect for those processes and a sense of trust that they are upheld which i should yeah. imagine is very important it is it is that's that's right and then then if you want to talk about the accessibility of buildings and these kind of things that's also a kind of a separate issue the physical accessibility of uh, premises then the methodology comes in because many of institutions say that they have barrier free premises, but what does it mean? Uh, is it like, uh, is there an accessible bathroom? Uh, are there any steps or just some steps? Uh, and so on and so forth. So we actually face also these issues that some uh, institutions claim that they have barrier free dormitories. But then you start asking questions and you realize that the room itself is all right, but the door are the doors are too narrow, so the wheelchair can't get inside. So no one actually thought about that part. But that can happen as well. Putting all the pieces of the puzzle together seems very important, um, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, in a perfect world, are there any particular data points you wish you could get your hands on, you know, to potentially benchmark with other institutions or other countries? Well, at least to have some statistics on the number of uh, students who have certain kind of uh, impairment, so let's say visual impairment, hearing impairment, hard of hearing, and so on, to get the idea of how many of those students are actually studying at various institutions, uh, and to provide a comparison and maybe talk about that part as well. Excellent. Thinking about that, uh, you know, the wider field in which you're working or the wider context, is the Tiresia Center part of a network of similar centers or offices or units with other higher education institutions in Czechia or more widely in Europe or beyond? Mm -hmm. Well, within the Czech Republic, there is an association of service providers uh, that was established in the year 2013. Uh, actually, we are the founding, uh, founding members of it. We initiated the creation of such center because we were the first center actually in the Czech Republic to actually provide the services. And then in, in the year 2013 and later in 14 plus, uh, the Ministry of Education started providing funding to other higher education institutions to create and form such centers. So currently there are on, on all the major universities in the Czech Republic, Czech Republic, there is a center such as ours, and we are uh, in these associations where in this association where we talk to each other and exchange ideas and maybe come with methodical uh, recommendations to the to the Ministry of Education. So within the Czech region, we are put into a we cooperate within the associations. On the European level, it's kind of a more difficult because of the diversity of the approaches. So disability unit, disability office, and so on, it might not mean the same thing. So it's uh, kind of an individual basis. So we have uh, lots of partners in Germany, Austria, but also with, with Spain, for example, with uh, with the ONSA association or the, or the uh, organization ONSA that provides services to visually impaired people in Spain. Uh, but also in Belgium uh, uh, and so on, and also in the in the northern countries in Norway and, and also so forth and so 
So we we talk to on individual basis mostly, but also to uh, like let's say associations such as EIE and ACA and so on. So. So there are avenues for those kinds of mm -hmm. cross-border conversations. Exactly, exactly. That's fantastic. Exactly. Yeah. So we've explored some of these issues now here in our conversation at the national level, the European level, the institutional mm -hmm. level. I'd like to bring us down to the personal level if, with you, if, if we mm -hmm. might, for just a minute. And was wondering if you might let us know how you came to hold the role that you have and what it means to you personally to be connected to this work with students and staff with disabilities. Mm -hmm. Well, originally I was working part-time at the center and I was providing editing materials, study materials for visually impaired students. And I was doing for like eight years or something like that on a regular basis, uh, especially informatics and mathematics, uh, presentations and textbooks. And then there was an opening at the studies office uh, as an internal employee. And I took the role because I thought that it makes sense uh, what the center does and where, it, where it's heading. So uh, that's how I became the employee in the year 2019, I believe. And uh, I started working and I think, I still think it makes sense uh, that the, uh, the service to students who have some impairment is a very important uh, thing to do. I think universities and institutions should be doing it or at least help the students find the appropriate service. So on my personal level, this is the main reason why I do it, and I kind of enjoy it. Well, that's what counts too, right? Yeah. Um, well, it is a very inspiring mission. Uh, the work of the Tarisi Center is, is so important, and we're very grateful to you to give us a little insight into the work that's been going on and the challenges and opportunities that you see. And uh, we hope to keep up with you as the time goes by and you're doing more. So thank you so much for spending this time with us, Tom. Thank you very much for having me. It was my pleasure and looking forward to seeing you again. Thank you. That was Tomasz Varga, Mobility Coordinator for Students with Special Needs and Student Services Advisor at the Tiresias Center, located at Masaryk University. If you want to learn more about his institution's work in this area, please check out our session notes for this episode. And as we indicated in our conversation with Tom, the very next episode of the EA podcast will continue the topic of student mobility and disability with a focus on data collection in relation to this issue. We hope you'll tune in for that. Before we wrap things up, just a word about what's going on at the EAE these days. The EAE Community Summit will take place on March 8th and 9th. Spots remain available for this engaging online networking and learning event, where we'll explore matters of leading, learning, and living in international higher education through the compelling lens of thriving in complexity. Registration for the Community Summit closes on March 7th. Non-members can register for the event for 119 euros, and EAE members can register for free. On the subject of membership, don't forget that the EAE offers group memberships in packs of 10, 15, 20, and 35, which provide all the perks of an individual membership, but at a reduced rate. The opportunity to take up group membership packages will expire soon, so if you're interested, do check out the information on our website. That's www.eaie.org. Thank you again for spending some time with the EAE podcast today. We hope you'll join us for the next episode in two weeks. Until then, all good wishes to you from the EAE.